If you say the word hydroxychloroquine, there'll most likely be two very different responses. For some, it's a promising drug in the fight against the coronavirus. For others, it's a hyped-up drug with no promise at all. Now, both sides point to doctors and medical experts to back up their claims. This week, the FDA removed its emergency authorization for the use of this drug in the coronavirus. But the disagreement continues. So what's really behind this disagreement? Well, it's politics. As soon as the president mentioned this drug, it ceased to be a medical or scientific question, and it became suddenly a political debate. Now, if I'd said the word hydroxychloroquine to you four months ago, you probably would have said, what? I've never heard of that. What is it? And that's the effect that politics has on almost everything. It polarizes everything it touches and sends people, everyone, into one of two corners so that the fight can begin. Why? What is politics? Well, the word politics comes from the Greek word politica, which means the affairs of the cities. And it deals with how large groups of people, city-sized groups and larger, make decisions. They don't ever just suddenly, mysteriously agree on what to do. That's impossible. No, they give leaders the power to decide. And that's why Webster defines politics this way. It is the art or the science concerned with winning and holding control. So practically, politics is really about authority. Who's in charge? Now, not everyone in authority, of course, is good. But the existence of authority itself is actually a very good thing. Authority exists to prevent anarchy and the destruction that comes with it. To prosper, we have to live and be able to work together. Now, that sounds great in theory, but in reality, it's a struggle because no two people can agree on everything, let alone a group of people the size of a city like ours of over 200,000 people or a country like ours of over 330 million people. So we need authority. But the problem is we all want to be in charge. We don't want to follow. When my son was six, I asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he said, I want to be a father. Well, man, for a dad, it doesn't get any better than that. Just the thought that my son watching me be a father made him decide that that's what he wants to be when he grows up. So I decided to kind of lean into it a little bit, and I, I was honored and touched. And I asked him, well, why do you want to be a father, buddy? And he said, well, it's so I can tell people what to do like you do. Well, there it is. A six-year-old summarizing centuries of political turmoil. We want to tell people what to do. But no one wants to be told what to do. So we have this love-hate relationship with politics. We love it when we win or the group that we're for is in power and we're in charge. And we hate it when we lose and we have to follow. Now, when we discover who Jesus Christ is and we decide to follow him, he changes us. And it even changes our politics. How? Does Jesus put out a voter guide? No, he doesn't. Is he a Democrat or is he a Republican? No, he's not. So how does this change our politics? Well, in the book of 1 Peter, which is the book that we're working our way through in the New Testament, this book describes how God changes us and then calls us to make a difference in this world. So let's quickly review kind of what we've covered so far. This change begins with us. We need to be different. And that change is an inside-out process that begins when we ask Jesus to give us the new life that he provides on the inside. And that begins to change us. But that change doesn't just stay with us. It moves beyond us 
to change the world, to impact the world. Now, what is wrong with this world has many layers to it, but at the core of what's wrong with this world is this inside problem between us and God. And once that problem is addressed, we can be a key part of changing our world. But making a difference in this world is not just automatic. We have to first be willing to pay the price of making a difference. And that's what we looked at last week. We have to properly then navigate all of the power struggles of this world that pulls us into the whirlpools. And this is what we're going to be looking at next. The, the big three power struggles in this world that, that distract us and keep us from really making a difference are these. They are politics, family life, and relational conflict. Those are the big power struggles that we get derailed by. So today we're going to turn our attention to the power struggle of politics. Political authority rises and falls on the matter of justice. If those under authority are treated justly, then the authority is strengthened. If, on the other hand, they are treated unjustly, then the authority is weakened and will eventually collapse. Not immediately, but eventually that authority will collapse if the problem of injustice is not addressed. Now, in 1 Peter, God explains to us why justice is so important, why it's such a big deal, and what to do when we are experiencing injustice. So we're going to begin first with top-down justice and the politics of force. And we're going to look at why we both need top-down justice and why force is important. And then we're going to consider bottom-up injustice and the politics of faith. Why faith is so important, and in the long run, even more powerful than force. But let's begin with top-down justice and the politics of force. This is how we experience justice in this world. Here's what 1 Peter says, chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. It says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Justice is from the Latin word just us, which means what is right. So to be just then is to simply do what is right. And that, of course, raises a big question. How do you know what is right? Well, practically for all of us, or most of us, it begins with our parents. They're the first ones that tell us what is right and what is wrong. But they become the first in a lifelong line of authorities from our teachers to our bosses to those in government who are over us who tell us what is right and what is wrong. But human authorities are not the final word on what is right. God himself is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. The first phrase that we just read in this verse outlines where authority comes from and how it flows from God to us. Here's what it says again. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Now, it's so important to understand what this means that I want to show you a diagram that I think will help uh, visualize what this sentence is saying. So we'll begin with you. you. You are here. And then over you is every human authority in your life. And then over that is God, who is an ultimate authority. So it says we are to submit to human authority for the Lord's sake. And the reason is because it, this is how God administers justice in the world. We're, we're following human authority, but it's really on behalf of God that the justice is flowing to us. So here's the way it works. It flows from God through human authority to us. Now, why not just go direct? Why not, why not just have God directly enforce justice to us? 
Well, it's because then we would make up our own rules and we would put God's name on it. Because of the simple fact that no one can see God and therefore no one can challenge what we say God has told us to do, what we say is right or what is wrong. We can't verify that if God goes direct without human authority. Now, my kids figured this out usually around age three or age four. And this is one of the common ways it showed up. By that age, they had heard a lot about God in our home, and they knew that my wife and I were pretty serious about obeying God and following him, that he was our top authority. And so, for example, we would then tell them it was time to go to bed, and they would say, but God said I can stay up longer because they realized that God was in authority over us. Well, of course, God hadn't told them that they could stay up longer to counter our authority. They were just reflecting. They were putting God's name on what they, in their heart they really wanted to do. And that's what people often do, not just three- and four-year-olds. So you see, without the middleman of human authority, justice is quickly reduced to whatever I want to do, which leads actually to a great deal of injustice. Now, if you want to know what happens when human authority is removed and there is a vacuum authority, you don't have to look any further than some of the failed states in our world right now, like in Syria or in Somalia. In those places, injustice is rampant. Now, that, the reason for that is because justice is not just about knowing what is right and what is wrong. Justice is also about the consequences of not doing what is right. So it says of these human authorities that they are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So it's not just ideas that flow downstream. There needs to be enforcement. Force needs to flow downstream to reinforce and imply and implement the ideas of what is right and what is wrong from God. This is why downstream justice requires the politics of force. So, for example, we have law enforcement officers, not law encouragement officers. They come with force. And we call the police the police force, not the police friends, because there's force implied. Now, why can't we just know instinctively what is right and then just do what is right? Why does justice have to be enforced? Why does force have to come with this flow of justice? Well, that's actually a debate that's raging right now in our culture. In the wake of the death of George Floyd, the need for change, particularly in the use of force, is really obvious. But some are actually demanding that the police be defunded or even abolished. And the thinking is that if the money that is spent on police was instead spent on social programs, then there would be no crime. And that assumes that we are basically good and that any bad we do is because of our environment. So if you improve the environment then people will stop being bad, and then you really won't need police. That's the idea behind the defund or the abolish police idea. Now, this idea is not a brand new idea. It's actually an older idea. The idea is formally called humanism, and it's been growing slowly in our culture. And it's the opposite of theism, which is a Christian understanding of the world. Theism comes from the idea of theos, which is Greek for God. In theism, God is at the center of everything and ultimately at the center of justice. What is right and wrong originates from him. And he is the one that ultimately enforces what is right. Humanism, on the other hand, denies the existence of God and places us as humans at the very center of everything. 
That's why the root word is human, humanism. And therefore, we as individuals now are at the center of justice. Not God over us, but we are the center and the determiners of what is right and what is wrong. So as individuals, we all get to decide what is right and what is wrong. So what is right becomes what's referred to as my truth or our truth, which really usually means what I feel is right. And anyone who tells us something different, well, is oppressing us, also known as not loving us. And so if you disagree with someone who thinks this way, then your speech can actually be called hate speech by them because you're disagreeing with their truth. Now, the rise of humanism in our culture is so powerful and increasingly so pervasive that many Christians even who would profess theism, who would declare that they believe in God, they actually are practicing humanists. And what I mean by that is kind of like when my kids were younger. They are signing God's name to all kinds of stuff, basically whatever they feel is right, not what the Bible says. Now, clearly, a bad environment does accelerate evil. But the Bible places the seed of evil in the human heart, not in our environment. We are made in God's image, and therefore we are capable of great good. But in sin, we have fallen from those lofty heights, and we are now hounded by this persistent selfishness that's willing to harm others in order to get whatever we want. Now, you don't need to read the Bible to discover this. You can actually just read human history. Not many people do this anymore, but you could read human history and you'll find plenty of both nobility and cruelty in all kinds of environments, both really good environments and really bad environments. Or you can just raise a child and you will see for yourself what happens when they don't get their way. You can create a tremendous environment for them, but if they don't get their way, it's not a pretty sight. Stuff that comes from the inside of that child's heart is not good. Now, the framers of our Constitution were, for the most part, Christians, or at least theists. So they understood how God administers justice in this world, and they also understood the evil that the human heart is capable of, which is why they did not center power in any one person, but they divided political power among the three branches of government. And this framework has led to more justice and more stability than at any other time in history. But no human authority represents God's justice perfectly. There has always been and will always be injustice in this broken world. And we're seeing this play out right now on our streets. The question is this, how should the Christian respond to injustice? That brings us to the second major idea, And this is bottom-up injustice. This addresses the politics of faith, not the politics of fear or of of force. Justice that we've been talking about is a top-down matter. Laws are declared or they're voted on, and then they're enforced, top-down. But injustice is the opposite. It's a bottom-up matter. So let's switch the direction of the arrows. Whenever we're treated wrongly, we cry out for justice. And that cry always goes up, not down, because it's only those over us, only those in authority who have the power to grant us justice. Now, throughout history, oftentimes the calls for justice in the face of injustice have fallen on deaf ears, which is why force has been a prominent response to injustice. 
to force change upward. But for the Christian, there is more going on than just human authority. They see God beyond human authority and over all of this. Now, there are times when Christians have and should respond to injustice with force, but their first and their primary response is faith. Now, faith isn't just a passive giving up. It's an active response to injustice. And in these verses, we're, giving, we're given two very clear ways that faith responds in the face of injustice. Here's the first one. It's the faith conduct. And this is to do good. So what the follower of Christ does is they make sure that they're not the cause of the problem, that they're not actually getting justice and they're doing wrong, which is why they're getting punished. Here's what we read in 1 Peter 2, 15 through 17. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So in the face of injustice, what can you do? Well, in a democracy like ours, there's actually a lot more that we can do than most people throughout history have been able to do in response to injustice. But we are still limited, and the wheels of justice don't always move quickly or accurately. But what we can always do is do good, like it says here. We can always do good. And this is important because injustice has a way of causing us to stoop to a behavior level that we would never have ever thought of before the injustice. It justifies, in our mind, saying and doing things that we would have never done before. And whenever we do and say what is bad, we actually add justification to the injustice. But when we do good, we address several problems, and they're listed here. First, we silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. The idea is that we shut the mouths of people who look at what we're getting in terms of consequences and in ignorance think that we're just getting what we deserve. The next doing good benefit that helps is it helps us focus on who we are. It says we need to live as free people. We are free people. No matter where we are, even in prison, we are created by God to be free. And when we focus on doing what is good, whatever situation we're in, we are exercising our freedom. A lot of people use freedom, as it says here, as a cover-up for evil. What that means is they think of freedom as the ability to do whatever I want to do. But that's not what freedom really is. We understand that we are created in God's image. We are God's slaves. We are forever attached to him. Now, that sounds like the opposite of freedom, but it really defines freedom. True freedom is doing what is right before God. So when we do good, we are exercising our freedom. And then it goes on to give us a simple do-good list, conduct list, that's really in short supply whenever we're facing injustice. First, it says, show proper respect to everyone. You will be tempted when you're facing injustice to be short with people, but don't give in. It's amazing how whenever we're facing injustice, we start treating other people poorly. We start dispensing injustice in our relationships. Don't fall for that. Then it says, love the family of believers. In other words, don't pull back from church life. Keep investing. Keep loving. Because you're going to need the support of the people in the church that you're part of now more than ever. And then fear God. In other words, don't let the fear 
of what might happen to you gets you to forget who really is in charge. God is in charge. And remember that taking him seriously, which is what it means to fear God, taking him seriously is actually the safest place that you can ever be on earth. And then honor the emperor. Honor authority. Don't provoke those in authority in the middle of the process. Now, the second part of the faith response is the faith calling. And that is to wait for justice, to be willing to wait patiently for justice. In a broken world full of broken people, you can expect injustice. So be prepared to suffer. But the suffering is not a pain without purpose. There is a calling that's embedded in the waiting and in the pain. It's a calling from God that comes in the middle of the injustice. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 21. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. For how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, there have been better and worse human authorities. The book of 1 Peter was written when the emperor was Nero. Nero was in power. And you don't have to do much search in history to discover Nero was one of the all-time worst leaders. He was awful. He was evil. But to make matters worse, it wasn't just Nero that was in power politically. The dominant system of labor at the time was owner and slave, which is about as unjust as it gets. So why didn't Jesus focus on abolishing slavery and overthrowing Caesar. It's because human justice is a problem that can only ever be solved by eliminating it and going directly to God. And that will happen in God's timing. But none of us will survive the day of God's justice because of our sin. We can't take justice. Because while we might want justice against someone who's treating us poorly, when God administers complete justice, all wrong is addressed, even our wrong. And none of us will survive the day of God's justice. This is why the top mission of Jesus was to make a way for justice to be served and for us to be forgiven. It's not that Jesus agreed with slavery. It's not that he preferred an evil dictator over democracy. That's not the reason at all. Human justice and the problems that come with it are big, and they are important, but they are temporary. Jesus came to address the bigger problem. So if we can get human justice, well, we should. And if we can improve human justice, we really need to do that. In a democracy, we can, and we should do our part to improve justice. But our primary calling as followers of Christ in this world is to follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and to make his top mission our top mission. Here's what he says again. To this you were called. Why? Because the one you follow, Jesus Christ, suffered for you. He suffered injustice for us, leaving you an example that you should now follow in his steps. And then the next verses give us the example that he left us. Verses 22 through 23 says, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 
When they hurled their insults at him, this was at the foot of the cross, he did not retaliate. When he suffered on that cross, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Why didn't Jesus stop the great injustice of his crucifixion? Clearly, he had the power to. I mean, why not even just make a few threats? He didn't do that. It's because it would have been a distraction from what he was doing. It would have potentially derailed the entire mission. Jesus was pursuing the far bigger and the eternal justice problem that we all have with God because of our sin. So in the face of grave personal injustice, he did not sin, which meant he kept quiet. And in doing so, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus knew that injustice is never a permanent condition. Injustice is always a temporary delay on justice. God will judge justly. Every wrong will be made right. But that will sweep up everyone and every sin. So while we wait for that day when God brings justice, we make a bigger deal of following the calling of Jesus to point people to the mercy that God offers them. Let's pray. Father, we, we do ask for justice in our nation at this time. I pray for those in political leadership and authority over us right now. Father, I ask that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them insight into what needs to change and how it needs to change. I pray that you would uh, help them to be driven by wisdom and not just by the polls or by whatever the pressure is. And Father, in the middle of our own situations, we pray that you would help us to follow your example, Jesus, and to be willing to wait for justice so that we can point others to the even bigger issue than human justice. Jesus, we thank you for the price you paid for us. Help us to follow you in the middle of these really challenging times. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.